This audio recording is brought to you by BMA Theological Seminary. For more information on the BMA Theological Seminary, go to bmats.edu. This is what I'm most known for, I suppose, uh, this seminar, Clouds Without Water. My first love is expository preaching, just preaching God's Word verse by verse. But this seminar, Clouds Without Water, the title of it is taken from the book of Jude, Jude verse 12. Jude refers to false teachers in a number of different ways. He says they are hidden reefs in your love feast. They feast with you without fear, caring only for themselves. And that is one of the hallmarks of a false teacher. A false teacher does not care about you, does not care about God, cares only for himself or herself. And then he says that they are clouds without water. And the picture there that Jude draws for us is that false teachers have the appearance of having some sustenance, appearance of nourishment, but nothing ever falls from them. They leave the ground below them dry and parched. And so that is the uh, meaning of my title here, Clouds Without Water. Uh, Clouds Without Water, this seminar specifically is dealing with what is called the Word of Faith movement. That is the proper term given to a movement that is more commonly known as the health and wealth gospel the name it and claim it gospel, the prosperity gospel, basically the doctrine that says it is always God's will for a Christian to be wealthy and it's always God's will for a Christian to be physically healed. We should never be sick. Or in the event that we do get sick, physical healing is guaranteed provided that we have enough faith. And this word faith theology, this prosperity gospel, saturates what we see today on Christian cable and satellite television. TBN, Daystar, the Inspiration Network, Lasia Broadcasting, uh, the Word Network, uh, and any number of local Christian outlets. It's not 100% of what you see on Christian television, but it is the vast, vast majority of it. I would say upwards, easily upwards of 95% of what you see on Christian television is this health and wealth name and claim it, prosperity gospel. Men and women like Benny Hinn, Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Jesse Duplantis, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, Joel Osteen, Joseph Prince. Uh, you know the names. You see these people on Christian television 24-7, 365. And I can tell you, dear ones, as bad as this problem is here in the United States, it's far worse overseas. And I have been all over the world. I've preached on every continent except for Antarctica. I don't have immediate plans to go to Antarctica and preach. And this is the face of Christianity around the world today. Around the world today, Christianity has one of two faces, either Roman Catholicism or word of faith or a blending of those two. And you see that increasingly now, a blending of those two. Uh, neither of which is biblical Christianity. What has happened is that the United States of America has created this theological poison, and we have now exported it to the rest of the world. And that is the face of Christianity around the world today, tragically. And uh, it is a very, very serious issue. Now, just briefly to give you a little bit of background information as to how I first became interested and exposed to this movement When I was a teenager, I was born with cerebral palsy. I walk on crutches. When I was a teenager, a neighbor of mine came up to me, and he said, Justin, God has spoken to me, and he's told me that he's going to heal you as long as you have enough faith. And at age 16, this really resonated with me. I wanted to be able to walk. I wanted to be able to run and play sports and do all the things that my friends were doing. And so I really latched on to this. And this was a man who was always claiming to get a dream in a vision. God was always speaking to this guy. God seemed to speak to this gentleman more than he did to Moses. I mean, he's just one of these guys. And so he told me about a faith healer who was coming to my hometown of Vicksburg, Mississippi, named Nora Lam, L-A-M. Nora Lam's a Chinese woman, wrote a book entitled China Cry. And I won't go into all the details for time's sake, but in the weeks leading up to her arrival, her little crusade there in, in Vicksburg, Uh, this neighbor of mine, Charlie, was spending a lot of time with me, and he was showing me a lot of scriptures that seemed to support his belief that it's always God's will to be healed. 3 John 2, Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, by his stripes we are healed. 
Now, he was taking these verses out of their context, but at age 16, I didn't know that's what he was doing. I'd never even heard of hermeneutics, much less understood what it was. And so I uh, really believed that I was going to be healed. I went to see Nora Lamb at the Holiday Inn there where she came and had her little thing. And um, a friend of mine, Justin Fisher, who is also crippled, he went with me. And we were fully expecting to be healed and obviously uh, were not healed. Uh, and so that was my first introduction to this movement. I didn't even know it was a movement at the time. Uh, it wasn't until years later that I began to study this movement at a more academic level. And when I began to study it and study the origins of it, then I came to realize that the origins of the prosperity gospel are not Christian at all. The origins of the prosperity gospel are rooted directly in the metaphysical cults. Christian science, New Age, New Thought, Gnosticism. And so what you see on Christian television today and what is being preached in multiplied thousands and thousands of churches all around the world is not Christian. It's cultic. It's cultic doctrine wrapped in a little bit of Christianese, Christian lingo to make it appear to be Christian, but it is anything but. Um, And some have made the charge against me that the reason that I do these seminars is because I'm bitter. Uh, I'm bitter that I was not healed as a teenager when I went to see the faith healers, and so now I've just got a personal axe to grind. Dear friends, let me tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. If I have to live the rest of my life with cerebral palsy, that's fine. I've got all of eternity to live without it. So there's not a bitter bone in my body about not being healed. I do what I do because I'm driven by the truth of God's Word, and I'm committed to God's Word. 25 of the 27 books in the New Testament directly warn about false teachers. It is a warning about false teachers is a very prominent theme in the New Testament, very prominent. And so that is why I do what I do. Now, to let you know where we're headed over the next couple of days, today and Thursday, uh, Clouds Without Water is divided into four seminars, so uh, four sessions. So we'll have this morning, this afternoon, Thursday morning, Thursday afternoon. This morning session is entitled The Duty of Discernment. We're not really going to get into the nuts and bolts of the Word Faith Movement per se in this session. What I want to do in this session is just lay some groundwork, talk about discernment in general, what does the Bible have to say about discernment, and we'll answer some of the criticisms that will come our way. If you exercise discernment, encourage other people to do so, you're going to, face, you're going to be faced with some criticism. We'll look at those crit- criticisms, and then we'll answer them from Scripture. So, and also at the end of our time, I thought we might have just a few minutes of Q&A. So if you have some questions, uh, be thinking of those. And at the end of our, my lecture this morning, I'll do my best to answer some of those questions if you would like to do that. All right. So the duty of discernment. What is discernment? Well, discernment is the quality of being able to grasp or comprehend what is obscure. It stresses the power to distinguish or select what is true or appropriate, being able to sift through truth from error, right from wrong. Charles Spurgeon rather famously said that discernment is not so much being able to distinguish between truth and error, but between truth and almost truth. The Bible has a great deal to say about discernment. The primary word for discernment in the Hebrew language is the word ben. Ben means insight, understanding, It means to separate things from one another at their points of difference in order to make a distinction. And you see this word been used about 250 times throughout the Old Testament. It's a prominent theme. You see it a lot in the book of Proverbs. The primary word for discernment in the New Testament in the Greek language is the word diakrisis. Diakrisis means a distinguishing, a clear discrimination, judging. Oh, well, I didn't think we were supposed to judge as Christians. Well, we'll look at that in a little bit. In the verb form of the same word is the word anachrono. It means to distinguish, to separate out, to test. Dear friends, we are to test all things. 1 Thessalonians 5.21. We are to test all things, hold fast to that which is good. We are to test everything through the lens of Scripture. 
Discernment is not an option for the Christian. It's not an option. It is our duty. It is our mandate from Scripture to exercise discernment. Now, some people have a gift of discernment, spiritual gift of discernment. And so for some people, discernment comes rather naturally or supernaturally, if you will. Uh, But for most of us, we don't have the gift of discernment. Uh, It's not our primary spiritual gift. I don't believe it's my primary spiritual gift. But just because it's not your primary spiritual gift, that is not an excuse not to exercise discernment. You may not have mercy as your primary spiritual gift either, but guess what each and every one of us can do? We can all still do what? Exercise mercy. Show people mercy. So it's a cop-out to say, oh, that's just not my thing. That's just not my gift. No, it's incumbent upon all of us to test all things through the lens of Scripture. One of the things that makes false teachers so appealing and yet so dangerous is that not everything that false teachers teach is false. Okay, Some of it's right, but there's enough error and heresy mixed in with it to corrupt the entire thing. I often use the illustration of water. I have a little bottle of water up here. This water is fine. I can drink this water. But what if I were to put in just one or two drops of strychnine into this water? Then should I drink it? No, it would kill me. Graveyard dead. A little poison does a great deal of harm. And there is a great deal of poison in the word faith movement. Great deal. The quintessential passage for discernment in the New Testament, undoubtedly Acts 17, verse 11. For the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessaloniki, in the way the town's pronounced in Greek, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, searching the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. The Apostle Paul and Silas came to the city of Thessaloniki. Uh, They preached the gospel, but uh, their message was not received very well. You read the text, and and there was a group of rabble-rousers, and they kind of created a little bit of a mob there and uh, made things really hot there for Paul and Silas. And so the other brothers shepherded them out of Thessaloniki. So they left Thessaloniki, and they came to the city of Berea. And in Berea, Paul and Silas were received quite well, as was their message. And notice that the Bible says that the Bereans were considered more noble. Now, why? Why were the Bereans more noble than those in Thessaloniki? Well, I think we have three indications in this one verse of Scripture. Number one, the Bereans were considered noble because they studied the law. They were students of God's Word. Dear friends, we must be students of the Word of God. God has revealed Himself to us in His Son, Jesus Christ, and we have a perfect, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient record of that in His Word. And we cannot know God apart from knowing His Word. So we must be good students of the Word of God. And it's tragic today that for the vast majority of people who profess to be Christians, notice I say profess to be Christians, they may bring their Bibles, maybe, bring their Bibles with them to church on Sundays. But chances are during the week, they rarely, if ever, pick it up. They don't study the Word of God. And today the terms doctrine and theology have almost become bad words. And you may have heard someone say something like this, a sentiment like this. Oh, well, well, I don't need doctrine. I don't need theology. I, I just love Jesus. That is a foolish statement. That is a foolish statement. If we truly do love Jesus, then don't you think we would want to get to know Him? And the only way to get to know Him is by knowing Him in His Word. And it is sound doctrine. It is right theology that deepens our knowledge of God. And it is only when our knowledge of God is deepened that our love for God will be deepened. The Apostle Paul said this in Philippians chapter 1. He said, In this I pray that your love would abound still more and more in what? Knowledge and all 
discernment. You see, most people today have separated knowledge of God and love for God. Oh, well, you got your knowledge, your doctrine and stuff. That's over here. You know, that's just for the professors and the preachers. But over here, you see, is your love for God. That's what's really important. No, the Bible never separates these things. The Bible always combines these things. If you love someone, you want to get to know that person, right? Men, when you fell in love with the woman who is now your wife, you, you spent time with her. You studied her. You wanted to know, well, how does she like her coffee? You know, where does she like to go eat? What does she like to do? You studied her. And the more you studied her, the more you came to know her. The more you came to know her, the more in love you fell with her. And it should be much the same way in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If we truly love Him, then we will want to spend time with Him. And the only way to spend time with Him is by spending time in His Word, knowing Him in His Word. It is a false dichotomy to say that knowledge of God and love for God are separate. Also, uh, men, I want to chase a rabbit here for just a minute, and I want to address the fellas. Men, it is our responsibility to be the spiritual leaders in our home. It's our responsibility to be the spiritual leaders in our home. God speaking in Deuteronomy 11, You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart, on your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you rise up. Do you know studies show that some 70 to 75% of children who are raised in evangelical homes, and we're talking evangelical, not, not Catholics, evangelical homes, and they make professions of faith at very early ages, six, seven, eight, nine years old, they get baptized. Once they grow up and they leave home, they go off to college, they start their own families, their own career, they leave home, guess what else they're leaving? They're leaving the church, and they're not coming back. Oh, but, but they got saved. They got baptized. Well, they may have been baptized, but they were not saved. They were not saved. If you truly belong to the Lord, a genuine Christian may stray from the Lord for a season, but not indefinitely. Not indefinitely. If you truly belong to the Lord and you stray from Him, you know what He's going to do for you? He's going to put you right in the middle of Hebrews chapter 12. That's what He's going to do for you. He's going to discipline you and He will bring you back. And so all these kids that are making professions of faith at early ages, getting baptized, but they grow up, they leave home, no evidence of conversion in their life. Yeah, they got baptized, but they were not saved. They were not saved. And men... The responsibility of this in large part, not in totality, but in large part, lies at our feet. Because what we have done in the last 50, 60 years is that men have begun to export their spiritual responsibilities to the Sunday school teacher or to the youth group leader. My kids are getting everything they need in Sunday school. My teenagers are getting everything they need in the youth group. No, they're not. No, they're not. I am not against Sunday school. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not against those things. But the primary source of biblical instruction for your children, men, should not be coming from the Sunday school teacher. It should be coming from you, from me. The very best Sunday school teacher with the very best of intentions cannot do what God has designed you and me to do. Can't do it. It's our responsibility. Men, be the spiritual leaders in your home. Teach the Word of God to your wives, to your children. Model it by obedience to the Word of God. And men, protect your marriages. Protect your marriages. Also, the Bereans were considered noble because they received the gospel with ready, engaged minds. One of the things that you'll notice about false teachers is that false teachers always encourage you to disengage your minds. They'll say, if you really want to go deep with God, if you want to get to the deep, secret, hidden things of God, you've got to disengage rational thought. Put the old noodle up here in park. Watch this from 
Guillermo Maldonado. And I can give you a list. Uh, faith has been supplanted by reason. Today we don't do anything unless we understand it. When the, if you go to the scripture, every act of miracle of God, it cannot be explained. That's the supernatural means. Something that cannot be explained is beyond your head. It's beyond your reason. If you want to receive your miracle now, you need to disconnect your head. <laughs> and your reason has its place. I'm not saying you're stupid and we have to be stupid. That's not what I'm saying. But you can't get into the supernatural. You cannot move in the supernatural by, by the reason. Okay. He says you cannot move in the supernatural by the reason. You've got to disconnect your head. Is that what the Bible tells us to do? No. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and Mind, God gave us a mind for a reason, and we are to study to show ourselves approved unto God. You want to show yourself approved unto God? Read, study, and obey His Word. Read, study, and obey His Word. It's that simple and that difficult. And I have this term, apostle, in quotation marks, by the way. Because there are no more apostles today. Okay, there are no more apostles today. Revelation 21 verse 14 describing the new Jerusalem which is built on 12 foundation stones on which are inscribed the names of the 12 apostles. So all these people running around today calling themselves apostle this and apostle that. uh, No, you're not. Thank you very much for applying, but the quota has already been filled. Okay, no more apostles. And we'll talk more about that, Lord willing, on Thursday morning, in our session Thursday morning. Also, the Bereans are considered noble because they tested what they heard by the Scriptures. Even though they received Paul and Silas, they received what they were teaching. Notice that they did not take what Paul and Silas were preaching at face value. It says they searched the Scriptures to see if these things were really so to see if what Paul and Silas were preaching about Christ really did plumb with the Old Testament Messianic prophecies. I would encourage you not to take what a preacher preaches at face value. Search the scriptures to see if these things were really so. I would encourage you not to take what I teach you over the next couple of days at face value. Search the scriptures to see if these things are really so. Because I'm not the authority. God's word Yes. Why do we need discernment? We need discernment so that we will not be like little children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. We are living in a day and age today in which there are many winds of doctrine blowing about us. And if we do not know what we believe and why we believe it, then we will be tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine that comes along. Um, about 10 years or so ago, I, I came across a, a study, and it showed that of those, of those adults who convert to Mormonism, they convert to Mormonism in their adult lives, almost 50% of them come from one particular denominational background. Any guesses as to what it is? Baptist. About half of the adults who convert to Mormonism come from Baptist backgrounds. Baptist. Oh, but we're people of the book. We're people of the Bible. Well, unfortunately, many of us as Baptists, we know just enough Bible to be dangerous. Just enough to be dangerous. We at some level, some surface level, sort of know what we believe, but we really don't know why we believe it. And you ask many people today, many Baptists, many evangelicals in general, whatever that term evangelical means anymore, but why are you a Christian? Why do you believe the Bible? Well, I was was raised that way. Hope you got a better answer than that. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it. And if we don't, we will be tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine that comes along year and a half or so ago, I had an opportunity to sit down with two Jehovah's Witnesses for an extended witnessing encounter with them. And uh, I sat down, husband and wife, the husband was an elder in his quote-unquote 
church. And uh, we sat down for two and a half hours. And they told me what they believed. I told them what I believed, everything they brought up from Scripture or from uh, of their beliefs. I went to the Bible. I went to their, all their favorite texts, you know, John 1.1, 1, 1, uh, Colossians 1.15. And I answered what they were saying from Scripture. I was prepared to do that. But I guarantee you the vast, vast majority of uh, Baptists, if they had sat down with those two JWs, they would have mowed them over. The, the JWs would have mowed over them. Uh, we need to know what we believe, and we need to know why we believe it. If we don't, we'll be tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. Just because someone has their own popular television show, just because someone can write a popular best-selling book, does not necessarily mean that that person can be trusted to be a faithful expositor of God's Word. There are a lot of men and a lot of women out there who are trying to trick us. Remember, that mixture of truth and error, that mixture of truth and error is what makes it so very dangerous. And if I may, to chase another rabbit just briefly here, notice to whom does the Apostle Paul compare those people who are easily tossed to and fro? Who does he compare them to? Children. Children. Dear friends, nothing is in the Bible by mistake. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, calls people who are e- compares people who are easily tossed to and fro to children. Why? Because children are easily tossed to and fro. Parents, you know this. You can tell a little child just about anything you want to, and that little child's going to believe it. What captures a child's attention one week may be completely disinteresting to them the next week. They're easily tossed to and fro. Parents, grandparents, be very, very, very careful when your little six, seven, eight, nine-year-old child comes up to you and says, Mommy, Daddy, I've asked Jesus into my heart. I want to be baptized. Be very, very careful. When you look through the language of salvation in the New Testament, it is rather adult-sounding language, is it not? Deny yourself. How many little kids do you know who deny themselves? How many adults, for that matter, do you know who deny themselves? Take up the cross. Dear friends, when we've lost sight of the impact of those words, today when we think of taking up the cross, we just think of making it through some tough times. I've had some people come up to me over the years, a few people, and they, they said, referring to my handicap, they say, Justin, you bear your cross well. My handicap is not a cross. Cerebral palsy is not a cross. Cancer is not a cross. Arthritis is not a cross. Losing your job is not a cross. Are those trials? Yes. Is that what Jesus meant when he said, take up the cross? No. Absolutely not. When Jesus said, take up the cross 2,000 years ago, people knew exactly what he meant. They had seen crosses in action. Cross was a place of death. Cross was an instrument of execution. Jesus was saying, you must be willing to die for the gospel. Called upon to do so. That's a high bar. Luke 14, 26, whoever does not hate his own father, mother, wife, sisters, brothers, his own children, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus, of course, was not saying we literally have to hate members of our own family in order to be a a Christian. But what he was saying is that if we truly belong to Christ, if we are truly in union with the Lord Jesus Christ through the power, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit of God, our love for Jesus, our devotion to Jesus should be so complete, so unconditional that the love and devotion that we have, even for members of our own family, would look like hatred by comparison. By comparison. That's a high bar. That's a high bar. But friends, we can't pretend like Jesus didn't say these things. He did. That's what a Christian looks like. The Bible compares being a Christian to being a soldier. We don't send little kids off into battle. uh, we're, We're soldiers. We're slaves. 
We're betrothed to Christ. We're the bride of Christ. Adult-sounding language. Now, am I saying that God cannot save a child? No. I'm not saying that at all. God can and does save whomever He wants to save. And um, I have heard very credible testimonies from a few people who were saved at early ages and they remained faithful their entire lives. So it does happen. But for the vast majority of kids that we're baptized, just because a child has made intellectual assent to some basic gospel facts does not mean that that child has been changed. Does not, does not mean that the miracle of the new birth has taken place. Because you take a typical six, seven, eight-year-old child who's being baptized in a, in a Baptist church, and you take that same child and you raise that child in India, he'd be a Hindu. Take that same child, raise him in Italy, be a Roman Catholic. Take that same child and raise him in Syria, be Muslim. Children just naturally adopt the worldview in which they're raised. So be very careful. Wait. And I'm not saying discourage your children. If your child professes faith in Christ, don't throw cold water on that. I'm not saying that. You want to encourage that. You want to nurture that. But wait on their baptism. Give them an extended period of time to see if they bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do they have a love for the Lord? Do they have a love for the brethren? Do they have a love for God's Word? Are they growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they have an ability to withstand real temptation and real persecution? You're not going to be able to tell that when a child is seven. Ten years later, be a different story. So be very careful. Just be careful. Also, we need discernment because discernment is, a, is one of the marks of spiritual maturity. Hebrews chapter 5 Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. One of the marks of a mature Christian is a discerning Christian. You cannot be spiritually mature and lack discernment at the same time. You just cannot do that. A mature Christian is a discerning Christian. Uh, a few years ago, I was in a Lifeway bookstore and I was, uh, a lady was picking up a copy of The Message by Eugene Peterson. And I saw it, and the radar went up. And, and I said, ma'am, I know it's, you didn't ask my opinion, but da-da-da-da-da. And uh, so we got in this discussion, and, um, and she, said, she said, my two favorite preachers are John MacArthur and Joel Osteen. Lacking discernment, obviously. A lack of discernment can be a sign of spiritual immaturity. It can also be a sign of spiritual death. Romans 1. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. That is, that is the greatest act of judgment, is when God gives someone over. Gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Now watch this list of sins. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, gossipers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning undiscerning. Notice in that same list of sins, sins from which hopefully all of us would re recoil from, the sexually immoral, the, the, the wicked people, who the murderers who invent evil things, who hate God, undiscerning, undiscerning. That is a sobering passage of Scripture, is it not? Dear friends, when the Holy Spirit of God saves someone, that person automatically begins the process 
of sanctification. Remember 1 Corinthians 6? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor covetous, nor revilers, nor drunkards, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul says, for such were some of you. You were those things. You're not anymore. You were, but you're not now. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Notice those three terms. The two bookend terms, washed and justified, dealing with salvation, the new birth, regeneration. And what's the term right in the middle? Sanctified. Those whom God saves, He sanctifies. There are no exceptions to this. There are no exceptions to this. A couple of years ago, I got an email from a a gentleman. I have some gospel tracts that look like million-dollar bills on the front, but instead of one of the presidents, I've got a caricature of Joel Osteen. And you know who Joel Osteen is, of course. And, um, but on the back of it is the gospel, the real gospel. And uh, my website is on, in fine print down at the bottom. And somebody, I have no idea who, but somebody apparently was out in Las Vegas on the strip in Las Vegas passing out my gospel tracts. Well, this gentleman and his wife were given one. They took it and uh, read it, and they were just incensed. This guy emailed me, and he said, we got one of your gospel tracts, and he went on and on. He said, you know, he was very angry. He said, my wife and I have been saved for over 50 years, and we love Joel Osteen. And I wrote him back, and I said, sir, I'm concerned for you. You say you've been a Christian for over 50 years, and you like Joel Osteen? Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Joel Osteen is a man who has not once, not twice, not three times, but has repeatedly denied the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And Joel Osteen never preaches on sin by his own admission. He'll tell you he doesn't preach on sin. He'll tell you that. I don't preach on sin. How do you preach the gospel if you don't preach on sin? And all of Joel Osteen's sermons are just alike. I'm, I'm going to, in 10 seconds, I'm going to give you the entirety of Joel Osteen's theology. Here's, here it is. God loves you. He wants to bless you. You're a victor, not a victim. Your miracle is just around the corner. You just got to stay in faith. That's it. That's all he's got. That's all he's got. All of his sermons are just alike. I would leave Joel Osteen's church out of sheer boredom, if nothing else. <laughs> And this man and his wife claim to have been indwelt by the third person of the triune Godhead for half a century, and they can't tell Joel Osteen's a false teacher? Something's wrong. If the Holy Spirit of God is strong enough to save us, He is strong enough to deliver us out of deception. He is not a weakling. He's not a girly man. He is the third person of the triune God. Those whom He saves... He sanctifies. Now, we're not talking about brand new Christians. Someone right out of the gate, and they don't have any background of Bible instruction. They're newly saved. They've just come to faith in Christ. They're not going to have a great deal of discernment, you know, right out of the gate. So they have a little bit, but not not a lot right out of the gate. But as they are studying God's Word and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, who illumines the meaning of God's Word to us over time, guess what's going to happen for that person? that person's going to get discernment. Friends, we, we can't avoid it. If you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, reading and studying God's Word, He illumines the meaning of God's Word to you, empowers you to obey God's Word over time, you're going to get discernment. You're not going to be able to avoid it. It's going to happen. Romans 1 is a chilling passage of Scripture. Chilling passage. Okay, I want us to now look at some of the criticisms that will come our way if we exercise discernment, if we encourage others to exercise discernment. A lot of people won't like that, and they'll criticize us for it. So let's look at these criticisms, and then we will answer them biblically. One of them, judge not. Judge not, lest ye be judged, one of the most often taken out of context passages in all of God's Word. In fact... 
Uh, I've read now where judge not, lest ye be judged, is now the most well-known verse in all the Bible. It used to be John 3.16. It's not anymore. Now it's this one. Even though people may not know the reference, but they know it's in the Bible. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Well, the kind of judging against which our Savior warns is hypocritical judging. Judging somebody for doing something that maybe we're really doing ourselves, that is what Jesus warns against. But the answer to this is that, in fact, we are to judge safely within biblical parameters. Dear friends, when it comes to matters of doctrine, when it comes to matters of theology, we absolutely are to judge on these things safely within biblical parameters. Another criticism. Well, you shouldn't name names. Well, it's... It's one thing to warn somebody about a false teaching, but don't ever call somebody a false teacher publicly by their name. Don't, don't do that. Well, the answer to this is that, in fact, there is a biblical precedent for calling out false teachers by name. Now, it should not be done lightly, and we should not go around calling somebody a false teacher if they differ with us on some relatively minor theological point. Maybe in your eschatology, your premillennial uh, pre-trib in your eschatology, premillennial pre-trib, but you know some cat down the road down here and he's premillennial mid-tribulation in his eschatology. Oh, that, that heretic, that false teacher. <laughs> no, you know, we're not, we're not talking about things like that. There are a number of, you know, secondary tertiary issues that we can have differences of opinion on, with one another and still have fellowship in Christ. But when it comes to the fundamental doctrines of historical Christianity, the preexistence of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, the sinless life, the full atonement on the cross, bodily resurrection of our Lord, bodily resurrection of our Lord, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on these issues we must draw a deep line in the sand. And all the individuals that we'll be looking at over the next couple of days teach, have been teaching jaw-dropping heresies for years, some of them for decades. They've been called on it, and yet they remain unrepentant. So there is a biblical precedent for calling out false teachers by name, for warning the flock about wolves in sheep's clothing. Another criticism well, you're just you're causing division. This is just a, it's a very divisive thing to do. Well, the answer to this is that it is false doctrine that causes the division. Paul says in Romans 16, Now I urge you, brethren, mark those who cause divisions and hindrances contrary to the what? To the doctrine which you learned. And turn away from them. Don't coddle them. Don't associate with them. Don't enter into spiritual enterprises with them. Turn away from them. Mark them. Turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. It is not those who preach the truth that cause division. It's those who preach error and heresy that cause division in the church. Another criticism is this. Well, you can't deny that there's signs and wonders. You can't deny that God is doing signs and wonders in these churches. The answer to this criticism is, oh, yes, you can deny it. Yes, you can deny it. A couple of texts. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. That is a chilling passage of Scripture. There will be people on that day, and apparently they have been self-deceived. Lord, Lord, there's some, a, a, a ring of familiarity. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Perform many miracles in your name. Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, iniquity, depart. 
Just because someone has the apparent ability to perform a sign and wonder does not necessarily mean that God is the source of that ability. Matthew 24, now this verse is eschatological in nature, but the principle nonetheless applies. For there will arise false Christs, false prophets, and they shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Friends, these are not folks pulling rabbits out of a hat. This isn't somebody doing a card trick. These will be impressive signs and wonders. So impressive that if it were possible, which thank the Lord it's not, but if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. These will be impressive signs and wonders. More impressive than the hucksters we're seeing out there today. Give you a, well, let me show you this. This is a, a short video clip from Bethel Church. Bethel Church in Redding, California, pastored by a guy named Bill Johnson. I should say, quote unquote, church, quote unquote, pastored by Bill Johnson, because Bill Johnson's not a real pastor and he doesn't have a real church. But uh, he's one of the leaders in the New Apostolic Reformation movement. This is a twin movement to word faith. It's everything word faith is, even worse. They have even more emphasis on signs and wonders, modern day apostles. And his church is known for, among other things, having glory clouds. The glory of God appears and it manifests in a cloud sometimes, sometimes in gold dust. Well, uh, this gold dust from heaven supposedly just appears in their church and there's some video of it. Here it is. So that video was taken inside their church. I've been in it before. And they claim that that is gold dust from heaven. That's the power of the presence of God. Well, uh, not so much. <laughs> a year and a half ago, I was preaching at a church in Miami, Florida, Miami Bible Church. Long story short, uh, there was a lady who came to my seminar, and she came up and met me after one of the services. She told me her name, Vivian. And she was a member of El Rey Jesus, King Jesus Church in Miami, Florida, pastored by one of Bill Johnson's friends, Guillermo Maldonado. In fact, the video of the guy that we saw earlier said, disconnect your head, that guy. That was her pastor. Well, God saved her. And as you would expect, as a Christian, she left that church. Now is in a good church. But she said, Justin, when I was a member of El Rey Jesus, she said, it, and this church is known for having the same thing, the gold dust. She said, it was my job to take a canister of finely ground stationary glitter, take it upstairs, and dump it into the ventilation system. And then it would blow out on the congregation. She said, that was my job. Guillermo Maldonado and Bill Johnson, the pastor of this church, are good friends. Hmm. Coincidence? I think not. These are charlatans. They're hucksters. We'll talk more about that. By the way, it really helps the false teachers if you have a disengaged mind. A disengaged mind is the friend of a false teacher. A disengaged mind is the enemy of the gospel. An engaged mind is a friend of the gospel and the enemy of the false teacher. Another criticism. Well, we should just follow Gamaliel's advice. Well, who in the world is Gamaliel? Gamaliel was a Pharisee. He was Saul's instructor before Saul was converted and became known as Paul. We read about it in Acts chapter 5. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and he gave orders to put Peter and the apostles outside for a short time. And he said to the men of Israel, Take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. 
and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of census, drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. And so even though a lot of people may not know to call it Gamaliel's advice, they still have this general approach to questionable teachers. They'll say, well, you know, if these people, if they're, if they're not of God, they won't last. They won't last. God will take care of them. On the other hand, if they are of God, then we should not oppose them. Because in so doing, we would be found opposing God himself, fighting against God himself. So let's just have a a laissez-faire approach. Let's just hands-off approach. You know, if they're not of God, they won't last. There'll be a flash in the pan. God will take care of them. But if they are of God, then we should not oppose them because in so doing, we'd be found opposing God. Now, that sounds like reasonable advice, doesn't it? That would, you could even say that sounds like spiritual advice. But Gamaliel's advice is very bad advice for two main reasons. Number one, Gamaliel was not a believer. Okay, We have no indication that Gamaliel ever came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We can safely say at this point at least he was not. So to follow the advice of Gamaliel is to follow the advice of a lost person. Generally not a real good idea to do when it comes to matters of spiritual importance. Number two... Gamaliel's advice doesn't even pass the common sense test because false religions abound. If Gamaliel's advice was good advice, why do we still have Mormonism? Why do we have Jehovah's Witnesses? Why do we have Buddhism? Why do we have Islam? I mean, name your favorite false religion. They've been around for hundreds, some of them for thousands of years. Clearly, they're not of God, and yet they're still here. So Gamaliel's advice doesn't even doesn't even pass the common sense test. Another criticism is this. This is one of their favorites. When one of these false teachers comes under a little bit of scrutiny, when the spotlight gets shined on them just a little bit, the heat's turned up a little bit, this is almost always how they respond. Touch not my anointed. You've heard this before. Touch not my anointed. Don't criticize me. Touch not God's anointed. Well, when you hear this, this is how you can respond. Okay, that's fine. Take not scripture out of context (laughs) because that's exactly what they're doing. Touch not my anointed. Is it biblical? Well, it's biblical in the sense that it's in the Bible, but what does it mean? Let's look at it. Psalm chapter 105. He permitted no man to oppress them, referring to Israel. He reproved kings for their sakes. Touch not my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. So it is in the Bible, but what does it mean? Well, in context, the anointed ones refers to Israel's patriarchs and their descendants, not to today's modern preachers. Okay? And also, here's the real kicker. The word touch actually refers to doing physical harm, not to speaking the truth. Not to speaking the truth. You might remember that David had a couple of opportunities to kill Saul. Remember that? On one occasion, Saul was asleep. On the other occasion, Saul was, you know, nature had called, right? And so Saul was sitting there, and he was reading the paper, doing whatever he was doing. And David came up behind him, and he cut off a piece of Saul's garment. Remember that? And he said, I would not touch the Lord's anointed. I could have. Here's his garment, but I didn't touch him. David was saying, I did not kill him. I would not harm, physically harm the Lord's anointed. So we may be calling into question a lot of different false teachers and the false teachings which they teach, but none of us is chasing Benny Hinn down the street with a baseball bat. None of us is trying to do anybody any harm. So when you hear, touch not my anointed, you can say, okay, that's fine. Take not scripture out of context. And by the way, there are three New Testament passages, at least three, which refer to all Christians as anointed. 
Did you know if you are sitting here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you've been born again, sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, guess what? You're anointed. And you have the same anointing as does every other Christian. There are no super Christians with the super special anointing that the rest of us common knuckleheads don't have. Oh, well, he's anointed because he gets dreams and he gets visions and God talks to him. And, you know, all I've got is the Bible and taught by the Holy Spirit. No. You know what that is? That's Gnosticism. The, the division of Christians into classes, the haves and the have-nots, that's Gnosticism. It's not biblical Christianity. If you're in Christ, you're anointed. You have the same access to the same God through the same gospel. You are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit who indwells all of us as believers. Another criticism is this. Well, you're just, it's just not a very loving thing to do. It's not loving to tell someone they're wrong. It's not, it's not a very loving thing. Well, the answer to this is that the truth is love. The truth is love. Let's suppose we were to see a blind man walking towards a thousand foot cliff. Now we're in East Texas, so you have to use your imagination a little bit, but, but let's say we were to see a blind man walking towards a thousand foot cliff. Who among us in here, if we were to see that, would sit back and say, um, you know, I don't want to offend him. You know, I, I don't want to hurt his feelings. I don't want to hurt his self-esteem by, by telling him he's wrong. And, you know, who am I to judge? Maybe he's right. Who am I to judge? And so we just sit back and we say nothing. And we watch the man walk off the cliff and plummet to his death. Would anybody in here do that? Of course not. Every person in here, if we were to see a blind man walking towards a thousand foot cliff... We'd be running up to that man as fast as we could go, go screaming at the tops of our lungs, Sir, stop. You're in great danger. Turn around. And yet, don't we do the very same thing, only far worse, with far greater consequences, eternal consequences, when we see people going the wrong way spiritually, and we know the truth, but we don't tell them? If you really want to hate somebody, do that. Know the truth. Don't tell them. That is the purest form of hatred that there is. Know the truth. Don't tell them. If you really want to love someone, you should love that person enough to tell them the truth. That is the most loving thing we can do. Now, the truth can be offensive, right? The Bible says that. The gospel is offensive. The truth can be offensive, but we don't have to be offensive when we communicate it. There is a way to speak the truth. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.15, we are to speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, and that in love part is just as inspired, just as authoritative as the speak the truth part. So we speak the truth, but we speak it in love. Speaking the truth in love does not mean watering it down. Doesn't mean diluting it. No, you speak the truth, but you speak it lovingly. But speak it. And sometimes members of our own family can be the hardest ones to speak the truth to, can't they? Members of our own family are the hardest ones to reach. Way easier to speak the truth to a friend or a co-worker, when it comes to members of our own family, that's hard. That's hard. But if we truly love them, we should love them enough to tell them the truth. The truth is love. Another criticism, the last one. Well, Justin, yeah, you know, maybe they're wrong on some things, but they're, they seem so sincere. Joel Osteen, he seems so sincere, and he just smiles all the time. Well, the answer to this is that sincerity is not the issue. Truth is the issue. Dear friends, the men who flew airplanes into the World Trade Towers were sincere. But they were sincerely wrong. And right now they are all too well aware of that. Sincerity is not the issue. Truth 
is the issue. To give you an idea of where we're headed in our next three sessions, this afternoon, Dangerous Doctrines. We'll be looking at the cultic origins of the Word Faith Movement, the standard doctrines which they teach, and we'll see that uh, the prosperity gospel is a different gospel. I'll have video clips. It won't be just me saying Benny Hinn said so-and-so. I have video clips of Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, all these people you see on TV, and we'll see that the prosperity gospel, they have a different God, a different Jesus, and a different gospel. Session two, which will be Thursday morning, Lord willing, Mangled Manifestations. We will be looking at the more dramatic things of the charismatic movement. We'll be looking at tongues. Thursday morning, I'll give you a demonstration of how to speak in tongues. I'll show you how to speak in tongues Thursday morning. Uh, these people who claim to have been to heaven, uh, and they write books about their trips to heaven. We'll talk about that, how God does and does not speak to us today. How do we know when God is speaking? All those issues. And then our final session, The Hurt of Healing. And uh, we will be looking at physical healing. Is it always God's will to be healed? If I'm not healed, is it because I don't have enough faith? Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, by his stripes we are healed. What's, what's that talking about? So we'll look at all those issues, Lord willing, Thursday afternoon.